0: yeah welcome to the very first episode of We're Brooklyn. i'm your host omar ba let's get started so i was born and raised in brooklyn i love my city and barclays center is my neighbor but before i tell you about our little situation let me tell you a little bit about me when people asked me when i was growing up what i wanted to be i wanted to be a dj new york city was way too competitive and quick for me in the melting pot of new york city everything is continuously changing However, the culture of Brooklyn was changing fast, and I was struggling to understand why. My SUNY graduation wasn't impressing any employers, so I decided to focus on urban gardening. I worked with a company called New York Restoration Project, or NYRP for short. I got paid little to no money bi-weekly, receiving an academic stipend towards the student loans owed from my SUNY. That job planted the seeds of ideas to start this podcast. The company was great, though. The staff was great. Supervisors were great, learned a lot, super informative, and increased my work ethic in general. The company, NYRP, was owned and created by Bette Midler. She won a city grant from Rudy Giuliani, who wanted to turn 57 empty lots into condos and business developments all over New York City. Luckily, Bette Midler won the grant and bought the lots and turned them into community gardens and created jobs for NYRP, people like me. There was a saying. Lucky she had two green thumbs. I worked with MYRP for 11 months, maintaining community gardens all around New York City. I learned a lot about horticulture, but even more about neighborhoods and the importance and strength of community in the city. My appreciation for maintaining natural environments brought me closer to my community. In 2018, work was from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day of the week for 11 months straight. Every day at work, my mentor, Benji, We take a ride to visit each of our community gardens around town. We met the people of the neighborhood, the people in the community garden, and the people on the street. Benji made sure to give me a good history on all the neighborhoods and their people, especially his, East New York. One thing that stood out to me was that the native people in the neighborhood playing domino on the sidewalk outside of the community garden listening to music, always engaging with us and thanking us for our services when we arrived, Those people weren't the same type of community as the new neighbors coming down to the garden to quickly check on their vegetable beds before running back into their 10-story condo without saying hi to anybody in the garden and keeping to themselves or their children. There seemed to be an ongoing tension within the community garden that was almost invisible from outside looking in. Tension between natives of the neighborhood and the new people moving to the neighborhood for the first time. Some of the domino players said those same community garden people would call the cops on them if they saw them or heard them in the garden at an unreasonable time. The same people whose families been in that neighborhood for a lifetime. At the time, those cop callers were labeled as gentrifiers. One thing I did notice about Brooklyn is how quick things were changing. Brand new cafes in the hood, unaffordable to the poor. I saw a brand new cafe on Covert Street and Broadway in Bushwick. Through the huge glass windows, you could see a bunch of white people on laptops drinking coffee. I thought it was funny, given the term covert racism. Other things that stood out to me were brand-new luxury city blocks, condos next to old brownstones, mom-and-pop stores slowly disappearing, skyscraping storage units near Broadway Junction so Long Islanders can move their furniture closer to the city center without interacting with the community or neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, Bushwick, and East New York. But the change that affected me the most was Barclay Center, home of the Brooklyn Nets and Islanders. 18,000 arena seats, 22 acres of land, an empty Atlantic Transit rail yard that stretches almost seven city avenues, the local community protested against Barclays initially. After protests from the local community, the Supreme Court, with the help from Mayor Bloomberg, ended up approving this project in 2003, and Barclays Center was on its way to Brooklyn. How? When we get back, learn how developers and politicians bypass local community board members to create an NBA arena in our backyards. We're Brooklyn is? And we're back. Now time to dive into the history of Barclays Center. Barclays was opened in 2012. Barclays Center is a professional home sports arena for the NBA, Brooklyn Nets, and NHL Islanders. Barclays Center is only one piece of the development project that started. The full development project is called Pacific Parks Brooklyn. The plan of this project is to replace Atlantic rail yards surrounding Barclays Center with 17 high-rises around Barclays Center. This project is estimated to end anywhere from 2025 to 2035. In 2016, 461 Dean Street was developed, becoming the world's largest residential apartment building. I'll repeat that. The world's largest residential apartment building. Why the hell would they put that in Brooklyn? Not in Manhattan. In Brooklyn. The 32-floor building towers over everything in the area. 32 floors. I'm sorry, it just just mind blows me. Like, we went from three-floor stories, brownstones, five maybe, with a basement, to 32 floors? Anyway. The 32-floor building towers over everything in the area, including the symbolic Atlantic Clock Tower, which used to be the tallest building in the area, closest to Manhattan. I don't know who's designing these buildings, but... This building was hideous. The building was bright Mario red for a section of the building that is hard to look at, and the rest is gray and white. It's like, um, it's like a PS5. I'm not going to lie, it looks like a PS5 standing upright. Barclays Center looks like a rusty Futurama ship crash landing on Flatbush Avenue. Does not look like it needs to be there either. Are these developers creating ugly, out-of-place buildings intentionally? I used to enjoy thinking they were just stupid and cared very little about what they were overseeing. Here's what I found out. The developer of Pacific Park is Bruce Ratner, owner of Forest City Ratner Real Estate Company. The old owner of New Jersey Nets partner, Mikhail Prokhorov, partnered with Ratner to form the Brooklyn Nets Stadium, backed by billionaire Mayor Bloomberg in 2003. This is a sign of phase zero gentrification, where developers meet in private meetings planning to focus on which specific poor neighborhoods to gentrify for capital gain. Is gentrification intentional? Yes, it is. By breaking down the phases of gentrification, you will get a better understanding of how gentrified your neighborhood and their people really are. Bloomberg offered open-ended city support for a 22-acre project involving public land, including a state approval process that bypassed local representatives in the pursuit of eminent domain for an allegedly blighted area that was actually gentrifying. Initially, the area was already becoming gentrified because of 9-11. The Twin Towers falling gave the patriotic nation a scare, getting a lot of white people to move out of the neighborhood and over the bridge into Brooklyn, landing in mainly Clinton Hill, Clinton, Washington area, um, also into that down, you know, downtown area. But, you know, Barclays Center was another effect of it. Economic disasters are always jump starters of gentrification. Examples like Katrina, COVID are all disasters developers use to advance their gentrified agenda. New York initially pledged $100 million in direct subsidies for infrastructure of land. Actually, the city later added $105 million, including another 31 million coffers for land. Beyond that, it gave away city property, pushed the state transportation authority to relax its deal with Ratner, and agreed to affordable housing far less affordable than what the developer had proposed. The New York City Independent Budget Office in 2005 estimated a modest gain to the city. By 2009... Long-term city losses were predicted, compounded by far-gone revenue because of tax breaks. In 2012, Bloomberg considered Barclays Center a triumph. Ratner's gone, making unrealistic promises and losing significant sums. The development of Pacific Park is overseen by the ESDC, Empire State Development Corporation. As of 2018, four of 15 planned buildings had opened but the deadline was delayed by about 10 years from 2025 to 2035. The big winner is the original owner of the New Jersey Nets, Mikhail Prokhorov. Moving the New Jersey Nets to the nation's media capital meant a huge payday. On top of that, selling the team to a fellow Canadian billionaire, Joe Tsai, who is as of 2018, the sole owner of Barclays Center. Meanwhile, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority rail yard occupying 41% of the full project site awaits a platform before six or seven of the towers can start. Bloomberg in 2010 says, nobody's going to remember how long it took. They're only going to look and see that it was done. Pacific Park and Barclays Center are both signs of Mayor Bloomberg's tainted legacy. I live an eight minute walk away from Barclays Center and was luckily not displaced because of it. In 2018, the work commute through Barclays to get to our community gardens in the surrounding area was easy. We drove an F-150 truck, and it was still easy. It's 2023, and nobody wants to drive near Barclays anymore. The traffic is awful. The infrastructure didn't really change, but the population did. The amount of traffic and tourism that goes through there now is just beyond me. You know, and Ubers have increased since Barclays' first initial, you know, being built. Because of Ubers and all this stuff, there's so much more traffic in that area, causing, like, delays from up to, like, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Parking is worse than it's ever been surrounding Barclays, especially on NBA game nights. Don't even take your car out on a game night, or you will might be wasting your gas all night looking for parking. If you're from Park Slope, one of the surrounding neighborhoods of Barclays, you know how bad parking can get without Barclays. This is when I started doing more research into the phases of gentrification. How does gentrification happen, and when? According to Philip Clay's stage model of gentrification, gentrification happens through four different phases. Moskowitz, author of the book How to Kill a City, gives a clear explanation on the five phases of gentrification. There are four evident phases of gentrification. Phase zero, gentrifiers' drive focuses solely on money. Phase one, individuals, artists, punks, nonprofits, non-government and large institutions, move to a poor neighborhood and renovate houses. Phase two, you know, those attracted to change start buying real estate. The Media starts selling these first phase of gentrification as a positive to increase promotion of individuals to neighborhoods. Phase three, middle-class gentrifiers take on more prominent roles in gentrifying neighborhoods such as getting on the community board, being part of the committee meeting. Banks start lending loans frequently. Uh, To protect the banks, police presence increases in order to make the new community feel welcome to their new neighborhood. And then developers become renovators and builders. Phase four, gentrified neighborhoods begin to become more wealthy. Managerial class and professionals replace artists and punks. The Gentrification begins leaking into other neighborhoods. Phase five, condos become 50% vacant and luxurious banks for billionaires rather than housing for people that need it. Understanding these phases help you understand your neighborhood's role of gentrification. The media and politicians paint the image of gentrification as a way to bring resources and financial support to a struggling community. However, this is not the case. The New York Times loves to promote the New Brooklyn, without mentioning some alarming facts. Articles titled, Where is the New Brooklyn? by the New York Times, promotes people to move into cities who may have thought otherwise. Even the Brownstoner magazine was created in the 1980s, convincing suburban families to move back into the city after white flight and redlining. This was all a tactic of phase two gentrification by developers to get people to move into poor neighborhoods. The author of How to Kill a City, Moskowitz, writes, The media doesn't talk about the displacement and loss of culture in the borough, the influx of wealth and whiteness, corporate control of neighborhoods, and the few billionaire developers ultimately benefiting selling huge percentages to other billionaires in private before disappearing from the business completely, end quote. I agree with Moskowitz. They don't talk about the skyscraping condos next to the three-floor brownstone in Brooklyn. They don't talk about the psychological toll you pay to live next to a condo being constructed for years, Mr. Bloomberg. Not only are these skyscraping condos out of place, they have their own specific color, There's a study explaining how development often wipes out color and makes neighborhoods all gray and black rather than rich colors and graffiti, negatively impacting the people who live there. 461 Dean is an exception. However, Mario Bright Red, mm, that's not it. Do better. And 461 Dean is an exception of color. That's the only exception. 34 floors is not an exception. should be three floors, not even three floors. Just look, yeah, it should be a brownstone. We like brownstone. Anyway, the construction workers from outside the city, Long Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, upstate, are employed and the Brooklyn residents from the neighborhood are not, leading to more littering, smoking, drinking, rudely interacting with community members sitting on residents' properties at all times of the day, causing conflicts and competition with neighborhood business, which leads to more policing of BIPOC and poor residents, a sign of phase three gentrification. Is it worth putting up luxurious condo, hotels, market, rooftop, dog walking gardens in a neighborhood that doesn't want it? Phase four, bankers, yuppies start moving in or close to these areas and end up displacing these artists, nonprofits, and punks. Phase five, rent becomes too high to afford for even bankers Buildings become vacant, developers benefit off all of this in the background, selling luxurious condos to fellow billionaires behind closed doors, using the vacant skyscrapers as metaphorical banks for billionaires. Some of these newly constructed buildings not only stick out like a sore thumb, but they secretly isolate the rental community from engaging with the neighborhood. For example, the building Denizen Bushwick is a luxury rental building in Bushwick. This building takes up to two entire city blocks, all eight corners. The rent for a studio starts at $2,500 a month. This is 2023, so if it's past 2023, it's probably more. This building has multiple jacuzzis, a wraparound garden on the rooftop, with outdoor beanbags smothering the fresh-cut grass, flexible chairs, mini-golf courses, and people even walking their dogs on the roof so they don't need to walk their dogs out in the street. How do I know this? Because I was one of the contracted exterior maintenance workers on that roof, who had to come once a week for almost two years to take care of that rooftop garden. It was an easy job. The renters let their dogs piss all over the lawn and plants up there, so we had an excuse to not maintain anything for the most part and still get paid. We sometimes shared lunch with the service workers of the building who spent all day cleaning up after these dogs, spraying the spots they just pissed and emptying garbages on each floor of this eight-cornered gentrification fortress a couple times an hour. I was mind-blown, a roof full of gentrifiers in Brooklyn who'd rather let their dogs piss in their building than walk their dogs outside and get to know the neighborhood? The developers have created a new way for people to completely isolate themselves from the neighborhood while living in it. I had to do more research. According to the New York Times, the denizen was an artful makeover for two Bushwick blocks. Classic response from media promoting another gentrified establishment in a poor neighborhood. Everything around this building looks like Bushwick, by the way. An elementary school, a public park, the above-ground J-train, some tire shops, gas station, residential three-floor homes, little restaurants and bodega, and bam, something that looks like it belongs in Dubai. Just plants itself directly in the middle of everything. Barclays Center had been built at this time and was very similar in a way to Denison. From a consumer's perspective, hard to get into because of the price, but once you're in, it's hard to leave. Barclays Center has the 4040 Club, owned by Brooklyn's Jay-Z, even though i got to check with Brooklyn again to see if Jay-Z is still good. Crown Club, Spumoni Gardens, one of my favorite pizza places from Coney Island, a few businesses in Brooklyn, and other various corporate businesses. Everything is overpriced, surrounding Barclays Center, and only getting worse. You got $15 bagels as like an average price in the surrounding area. Don't forget, they got $20 burgers. And BK9 has $7 empanadas, which you can only get two. So it's a $14 two empanada package. And you got $8 slices of pizza on Fifth Avenue now because of artichokes. You got $9 french fries, a $3 can of soda. I can't even fathom buying something from Barclays. I went to a professional basketball game for the first time in 2022 because my mom had an extra ticket. Drinks were fifteen dollars for a twenty-four ounce of beer. I just wanted to see my favorite player, Kevin Durant, beat John Morant. Grizzlies won that game. It was a good game. Glad I got to see KD because he got traded to Phoenix, and now I have no reason to go to Barclays anymore. And everything in my neighborhood is expensive. I remember the price being one fifty for a bagel and cream cheese when I was in elementary school. Sometimes two dollars with OJ. Now the same place next to Barclays, a bagel costs anywhere from four twenty-five to five seventy-five depending on bagel flavor and cream cheese, not including a drink. Some bagels, they're costing up to $15. The New York Times might as well be gentrifiers too, because their opinion of every new business in a gentrified neighborhood is the same. Positive, positive, positive. We know why this is. It's part of the developer's plan of poor neighborhood promotion. Phase 2 Gentrification. Today I have two huge condos on the corners of one end of my block, facing each other, and then... On the other end of my block, I have two housing projects facing each other. The construction of the condos on the corner started in what felt like my backyard. There used to be an empty lot where drug addicts would hang out a couple houses down from me. Before the empty lot with drug addicts, they had KFC, and before the KFC, they had a gas station. Don't know how sanitary it is for a KFC to be built on top of an old gas station. But after KFC serving gasoline snackers for a decade, it was demolished and left an empty lot for another decade because the soil was too toxic to build on cutting off the area from the public completely. Finally, they excavated a lot and created a 24 sun-hogging luxurious condo slash hotel slash market slash rooftop garden. During that 10-year period, they knocked down the all-car rent-a-car across the street and put up a 20-foot condo. My backyard doesn't get sun during the day anymore. Dentrification makes 15 years feel like yesterday. If we don't even get sun, imagine what other problems. That's That's like a privilege problem to have. My backyard doesn't get sun. Like, imagine what's, like... Anyway, during the construction of that condo, I was falsely arrested for drinking on my own property one night. I was with two other white college friends, gentrifiers, and they let them go, of course, even though they were doing the same thing I was doing on my property. However, I was black and they were white. Even though it was my property, I spent 15 hours in a cell before the judge threw out my case. The judge read the address of the building being constructed across the street not the address I gave the undercover detective who asked for my ID and lied to me saying I had a warrant out for my arrest. A civil lawsuit was filed against those officers and I received $112 in the mail a year and a half after the incident. This is an example of phase three gentrification of a neighborhood where banks lend more loans to developing neighborhoods and police presence increases to protect capital and property. Since Barclays, police presence has increased in the neighborhood giving the false impression to gentrifiers that it is safer. Shootouts down the block from my house never stopped since before we moved there. If anything, they only increased. A weed dispensary in Park Slope, predominantly a white neighborhood, 10 blocks away from Barclays Center, was robbed last week. So April 15th, 2023. That gives a perfect example of how police presence, because of gentrification, actually increases violence in neighborhoods for the people that are living in there and not for the people that are moving in. You should ask yourself, why do you need a couple of white people to move into the neighborhood for you to get fresh produce in your grocery stores and for you to have police presence where there never used to be? Systematic injustice. Gentrification highlights it. Nothing changed in the neighborhood besides an increase in bank loans and police presence. What happened to all the promised jobs and affordable housing from Bloomberg and other city mayors from an unfinished Atlantic rail yard project? Stay tuned to find out more about the federal policies and history shaping the culture around Barclay Center. This was just a summary of who I am. Next episode, we will be interviewing people born and raised in Brooklyn while understanding the phases of gentrification. Stay tuned for an interview with Brooklyn's own Barry Bass from the band Phony People. Listen to his story about life growing up in Crown Heights, Clinton Hill, and Bed-Stuy, and also the origins of Phony People. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Omar Ba, and this is Where Brooklyn At! Please follow and support Where Brooklyn At! podcast on IG if you're interested on being on the show, please reach out to me personally. Thank you again, and stay Brooklyn.